Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper Podcast, where somebody's got to say it. My name is Patrick Hayes, your regular host, and tonight I don't have a guest I'm going to interview. I don't have a guest host. Tonight, you're just stuck with me, and we are going to do something a little different this evening. I am going to try to tell you a story. Uh, hopefully you'll just be able to sit back and relax and listen to this story and enjoy it. This is a true story, and it's a true story about a woman named Terry Shivo. In the state of Florida, early on February 25th of 1990, a 26-year-old woman collapsed in her home with her husband. Her brain was deprived of oxygen for several minutes, and she suffered brain damage. Terry was initially in a coma for a short period of time. After a few months, she comes out of her coma and is taken to a Florida rehab center for a rehabilitation program. In June of 1990, her medical coverage is terminated, and her husband, Michael Shivo, files a lawsuit against Terry's insurance company. The lawsuit is unsuccessful. Now, Terry has a mom and dad who are with her and who love her very much. Bob and Mary Schindler were her parents, and Terry had a brother, Bobby, and a sister, Susan. They were all with Terry to support her for years. In 1998, Till 2005, they were all fighting to save her life. But we're going to get into that in a little bit. Early in 1991, Terry can say words like no and stop. She responds differently to her mom and her dad when they speak to her, when they walk in the room, when they give her a hug or a kiss. Terry goes outdoors in a wheelchair and enjoys trips to the mall. Medically speaking, Terry is healthy and she's going to live a long time. She requires no machine to breathe for her. She requires no machine to pump her heart. She is not hooked up to an IV or a monitor. Terry is not in a coma and she is not brain dead. Her condition is improving and more advanced therapy is recommended. The only thing that Terry required was some help at mealtime. Terry needed a feeding tube. Things start to fall apart in September of 1991. It was reported that Michael Shivo, Terry's husband, started dating again. From this point forward, it is important to remember that Michael Shivo is the legal guardian of Terry. His wife is physically and mentally disabled. She is unable to make decisions for herself, so the guardianship is awarded to the spouse. This can differ state by state, but the outcome here is a standard one. On behalf of Terry, two lawsuits are filed for medical malpractice. In 1992, one settles out of court, and the second goes to trial. Over a million dollars are awarded. $700,000 is placed into a trust to pay for Terry's medical care. 
the remainder is awarded to Michael Shivo for his loss of companionship. Three months after Michael receives the money from medical malpractice suits, he refuses to use the money to move Terry from the nursing home to a premier rehabilitation facility. That had been the plan all along, as we're going to see. For the next 13 years, Terry Shivo receives no rehabilitation services, no swallowing tests or therapy of any kind. In June of 1993, Michael Shivo begins a romantic relationship with a woman he will have two children with. Michael moves in with this woman and marries her within a year of Terry's death. This is a sad story if it ended here. A mother and a father heartbroken over their disabled daughter. The money has been awarded to Terry to get her the care and the rehabilitation she needs. But instead, Terry's husband, the man the courts made her guardian, decides not to spend the money on his wife. She does not receive the care she needs, and her parents are powerless to help her out. I wish that was the worst part of the story. It is not the worst part by far. Michael Shivo hires an attorney named George Philos, and in 1998, they petitioned the court to have Terry Shivo die. At this point in the story, you're probably going to be asking yourself some of the same questions that I did. Isn't that murder? You can't just kill someone in a hospital, can you? Terry wasn't a convicted criminal. She hadn't been kicked, convicted of a capital crime. She was a woman in a rehab facility. How can the state order her death? Was this something Terry wanted? Was there a living will, some kind of final written notice, something that was written out and recorded somewhere that could tell us what the desires of Terry Shivo were? There was no machine to unplug. Even if this was her desire, how were they going to do this? No machine was breathing for her. No machine was pumping her heart. Now we get into the real story. Let's start with a question. Why did Michael Shivo want his wife dead? The answer to this question is unknown. So let's start with what we know. Number one, Michael Shivo said Terry would want to die. He said that she told him that. This is a tough part, and this is one of the big lessons we all need to learn. Nobody knew what Terry wanted in an end-of-life scenario because Terry never wrote down. Her husband, Michael Shivo, said he knew. Terry's mom and dad said they knew. But Terry Shivo did not have a living will. A brief written statement notarized at your local bank would give you a leg to stand on. The problem is, oftentimes for a 26-year-old healthy young woman, nothing is written down. After all, we don't typically think about 
end of life scenarios until we are older. Most people don't buy life insurance between the ages of 20 and 25. They wait until they're married and they have a kid on the way. And then all of a sudden they start to realize that they have things in their life that they need to protect. In the same way, not many 20 to 25 year olds have a will. We just don't think of a scenario where we're going to need one. Because she didn't specify in writing what her wishes were, lawyers were hired and it was taken to the courts. Number two, Michael Shivo would receive the remainder of the settlement money once Terry was dead. Although money is the first factor I would pick for motive, it just doesn't add up. Michael was able to spend his part of the settlement any way that he chose. By the time Terry died in 2005, the remaining $700,000 that was earmarked for her care was essentially gone. The money was able to be used to pay attorneys. Although it's hard to believe, the attorneys fighting to get the courts to kill Terry were actually working on her behalf. So they used her money. Michael said Terry's wishes were to have her life ended. The attorneys hired were arguing on behalf of and being paid by Terry Schiavo. In the end, there was no money to speak of. On top of that, towards the end of Terry's life, a wealthy Florida businessman offered Michael Shivo $1 million if he would simply allow Terry to live and relinquish guardianship to her parents. Michael refused. Although money seems to be a motivating factor for horrible things all over the world, it doesn't seem to be the case in this scenario. Number three, Michael was in another romantic relationship. And we'll get to that in a little bit. In this next section, we're going to talk about the fight to kill Terry Schiavo. In 1998, Michael Schiavo, with the help of attorney George Philos, requested the court's permission to have Terry die. To understand this, we must ask a few questions. Number one, what was the medical state of Terry Schiavo? Number two, what were her wishes? Terry's medical condition. Judge George Greer believed Terry was in a persistent vegetative state, PVS. He ruled that Terry was unconscious, unaware, and without cognition. The media was no better. By the time Terry died, it was an international news story. In early 2000s, unless you were living in a cave, you heard about the Terry Shavo story. It was everywhere, on every channel, in every newspaper. Reporters and newspapers used the phrases, in a coma, she was on life support, 
She was brain dead. She needed a respirator to breathe. But all of these things were false. Now, was Terry brought to the courthouse so the judge could see her? Did Judge Greer drive 11 miles from his courtroom to the Woodside Hospice Facility in Pinellas Park, Florida, to make a first-hand assessment of Terry and her medical state? No. Terry could travel. Terry could travel without a nurse. Put her in a wheelchair and drive her to the courthouse. We're talking about killing a woman. Shouldn't we be sure? Dr. Ronald Cransford was one of the neurologists used by Michael Schivo to certify that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state. Dr. Ronald Cransford claimed during the trial that he was 105% sure. Back in 1980, the same Dr. Ronald Cransford made a similar claim about David Mack, a police sergeant who was shot while serving a warrant. He said to David's relative, Sergeant Mack will never regain cognitive sapient functioning. He will never be aware of his condition nor resume any degree of meaningful, voluntary, conscious interaction with his family or friends. That was the advice of a doctor. Those were his findings after examining the patient. Sergeant Mack's relatives made a life and death decision. They pulled the plug on his ventilator. But he didn't die. In fact, Sergeant Mack regained his consciousness and his communication skills. In the case of Terry Schiavo, the prognosis of PVS was sufficient to get a death order. Up to this point, we have not even brought up the method of execution yet. Now, I know that I should call this a civil death order, but it wasn't. It was a state-sanctioned murder, and the method was starvation and dehydration. And I'm going to say that again. The method of killing Terry Schiavo was starvation and dehydration. The only way to kill Terry Schiavo was to remove her feeding tube and let her starve to death. I don't know how doctors ethically sidestep that landmine. Primum non nocere. A Latin phrase that means first, do no harm. The fundamental medical precept of Hippocrates. You know the oath that doctors have been taking for over 2,000 years? Somehow, and it started in the courts, a new law was passed, and I think we'll get to this in a minute, and then a judge enacted a decision based on that new law, and then a doctor carried out the orders of that judge. When Terry Schiavo was killed, 
when her feeding tube was removed and she was starved to death, that was done under a medical license of a doctor in the state of Florida. A new Florida law said that the definition of life support had been expanded to include a feeding tube. Remember now, folks, morality and ethics are out the window once it's made into law. Just ask the Jews, the gypsies, and the physically handicapped in 1940s Europe. Just ask the unborn in America after 1973. As soon as a law is passed, everybody has an excuse. It's not a good one. It's not one that's going to hold up when people have to stand before God, but it's an excuse. Now you should know why this became a national news story. An American court ordered the starvation of an American citizen who committed no crime. In October of 2003, Bob and Mary Schindler hired the law firm CLA, the Christian Law Association, to represent them. David Gibbs III was lead counsel on the case. He was with Terry Schiavo and her family through her death on March 31, 2005. David Gibbs III wrote the book I used for most of my prep work for this podcast. It's called The Fighting for Dear Life, The Untold Story of Terry Schiavo. I had David Gibbs III as a guest on this podcast, I believe, five weeks ago. You can look that interview up if you'd like to hear. In 2005, the CLA, the CLA, the Christian Law Association, received sworn affidavits from more than 40 medical professionals, including many neurologists. Everyone said the same thing. Terry needs to be reevaluated in 2005 using the advances in medicine that had been made since the year 2000. It was said Terry would be able to learn how to swallow if given proper therapy. Many stroke patients and other patients with severe brain damage regained their ability to swallow after being given proper therapy. So 40 doctors and medical professionals said Terry wouldn't even need a feeding tube if she got the therapy she needed, if she got the medical treatment that was available, but she didn't. From 1992 till her death in 2005, her guardian, Michael Schivo, her husband, refused to get her the medical treatment, therapy, and rehabilitation services she needed, even though the courts awarded Terry to pay for all of it. When these declarations from medical professionals were put before Judge Greer, he was asked for a reassessment of Terry's condition. His answer was always the same. No. Now, 
we said we needed to answer two questions. What was the medical state of Terry Shivo? And what were her wishes? We talked about her medical condition. Now we need to talk about her wishes. To paint the full picture, we need to start back on November 5th of 1992. This is two years after Terry Shivo collapsed. This is when Michael Shivo takes the witness stand in the medical malpractice suit. Michael made clear his intentions. He wanted to get Terry the treatment she needed. He wanted to keep her alive and he wanted to improve her quality of life. Michael Shivo was under questioning from his own lawyer in the malpractice suit when he takes the stand. I'm going to read from the court transcript. Question, why did you want to learn to be a nurse? Michael answers, I want to learn more how to take care of Terry. Question, when you look up the road, what do you see for yourself? Michael's answer, I see myself hopefully finishing school and taking care of my wife. Question, where do you want to take care of your wife? Michael, I want to bring her home. This was great news for Bob and Mary Schindler. Get Terry home and have the money to give her the care that she needs. That was a great relief. The Schindler family didn't have the money to care for their daughter, and fundraisers and bake sales weren't going to cut it. The court decided Terry's life expectancy was another 50-plus years. Money was needed. Back to Michael's testimony. Question, how do you feel about being married to Terry now? Michael, I feel wonderful. She's my life, and I wouldn't trade her for the world. I believe in my wedding vows. At this point, he is fighting off tears. Question, have you said you believe in your wedding vows? What do you mean by that? Michael, I believe in the vows that I took with my wife through sickness, in health, for richer or poorer, I married my wife because I love her and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I'm going to do that. 70% of approximately $1.2 million was designated for Terry's needs. But on February 14, 1993, only two weeks after the award was finalized, Bob and Mary Schindler had a heat falling out with Michael Schiavo. They asked him to honor his agreement to place Terry in a rehab facility. He threatened a legal injunction forbidding family members to visit Terry at her nursing home. To give some perspective, Michael Schiavo started a relationship with Joni Santanzi. They began living together in 1993. Michael and Jody have two children, and 10 months after Terry's death, they get married. For 12 years, while living with another woman, Michael is the guardian for Terry Shivo. He makes all the decisions. He was the court-appointed guardian. 
1992, Michael makes a compelling argument to keep his wife alive and get her the treatment she needs. In 1998, he asks the court for permission to have Terry die. During the trial, Michael remembers statements Terry made to him about not wanting to live on artificial life support. Michael Shivo's brother and sister gave similar testimony that Terry had made end-of-life statements about life support machines. Both of Michael's relatives testified that they had never told Michael about these conversations and didn't remember them until 1999 when they were preparing for their court testimony. That was it. That was the entirety of the argument to kill Terry. Three people testified that she had made end-of-life statements and therefore she dies. Forget about the standard in Florida state law that requires clear and convincing evidence. Why did Michael and his siblings only remember this from 1998 to 2000 when they were trying to get Terry killed? Why didn't they bring this up six years earlier when they were trying to sue doctors for $20 million? Why would a judge permit hearsay testimony suddenly remembered years after the fact and when uncertain, why not rule on the side of life? Why did so many people want Terry dead? The ruling came down February 11th of 2000 that Terry can die. For the next five years, a legal battle ensues. Terry's mom, dad, brother, and sister are fighting for her life. Terry's husband is fighting to have her killed. On March 31st, 2005, Terry Shivo died. She had her feeding tube removed on March 18th. With no food and no water, Terry Shivo hung on for 13 days. The day before Terry died, her mother went to visit her along with her mother's attorney. This is what they saw. And I quote, Dehydration has taken away, sorry, dehydration has a way of taking all the flesh and fat out of the body. The best way to describe Terry's countenance is to picture a photo from a concentration camp. Incredible dark circles from extreme fatigue radiated from the skin around her eyes down to her nose. Her teeth protruded outward against cracked, shriveled lips. Terry's skin was stretched thin and to the breaking point across her skeletal features from a lack of water. Her cheekbones and jaw bones bulged. Her eye sockets became two dark pits. She looked like she'd been beaten up in a back alley. Several days before Terry died, Michael Shivo appeared on ABC's Nightline and told the world that Terry doesn't feel pain. She doesn't feel hunger. What an idiot. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
Why then was hospice administering morphine if she didn't feel pain? Why did Terry Shivo have to die? Not just die, but suffer a horrific, long, painful death. She had two loving parents who were willing to take care of her. On October 26th of 2004, an offer to settle out of court was given to Michael Shivo via his attorney, George Philos. The Schindler family asked that they be permitted to take their daughter, Terry, home to care for her. The Schindler family would take on this responsibility at their own expense. They would provide Michael Shivo legal guarantees. They would never ask Michael Shivo for money for any of the assets of Michael and Terry Shivo or for any help with therapy, care, or rehabilitation for Terry. The family would cooperate with getting Michael a divorce so he could move on with his life. If he wanted to remain her husband, he could receive any of Terry's estate upon her natural death in the future. They said that he could continue to visit her whenever he desired. They wouldn't stand in the way of any of that. They said no legal claims or actions could ever be filed against Michael in the future, and Michael Shivo's attorney could draft this agreement however he saw fit. The parents just wanted their daughter to live. Terry's brother and sister wanted to bring their sister home so that mom and dad, brother and sister could take care of her. They didn't want any money. They didn't want any help. They just didn't want their daughter to be killed by the state. Michael refused. Countless hours of hard work went into the defense for the life of Terry Shivo. Amazing victories and outright miracles happened along the way. And I suggest to all my listeners that you buy and read the aforementioned book to learn all about them. I am going to focus the remainder of my time more on the moral, philosophical, and religious implications of what happened. If you starved condemned criminals, how far would you get? It would take about two seconds for the court to strike it down as cruel and unusual. That was a quote from Jack Kevorkian. Terry Schiavo would have received more protection from our federal government, the state of Florida, or any county district attorney if she had been a terrorist, a mass murderer, or an animal. Terry Schiavo was denied food and water until she was dead. That means the state of Florida starved a woman to death. This wouldn't have worked if she had been a prisoner of war. The Geneva Convention prohibits it. They prohibit starvation. This would not have worked if Terry had been a convicted mass murderer or any death row inmate anywhere in America. The Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution would then have protected her from cruel and unusual punishment.
The courts have ruled that states must execute their capital punishment sentences as painlessly and as swiftly as possible. States have stopped using the electric chair because they are unreliable. Some electric chairs didn't do the trick on the first attempt, and that was unacceptable. Lethal injection was used in an effort to treat the criminals humanely. Just so we're clear, starvation is nothing but sheer torture. And that's not my opinion. That's a quote from Kate Adamson. Kate Adamson was a 33-year-old mother of two who suffered a massive stroke. She was rushed to the hospital and put on life support, a feeding tube, and a ventilator. Her doctors gave her no hope of surviving. Her husband, Steve, disagreed. Kate remained in intensive care for about 70 days. As the hospital and Kate's insurance company argued to cut their losses, her husband, Steve, fought for medical treatment. Kate was completely paralyzed, non-responsive, and unable to communicate. This went on for several months as Steve prayed and his church rallied around him to support him in every way. The doctors pressured Steve to let Kate die. They said even if she lived, she'd be in a vegetative state hooked up to machines her whole life. But then, Kate regained the ability to eat, speak, and walk. Today, Kate travels widely to address crowds of thousands with her inspirational message of hope. At one point, Kate had her feeding tube removed for eight days. More importantly, she reports that she was aware of everything going on around her. She describes enduring unspeakable pain. And when being interviewed by Bill O'Reilly, Kate describes it as sheer torture. Nowhere in America are we allowed to treat animals this way. This is from the United States Department of Agriculture. The Animal Welfare Act and Animal Welfare Regulations. And I quote, Dogs and cats must be fed at least once each day. The food must be sufficient quantity and nutritive value to maintain the normal condition and weight of the animal. Water must be offered to the dogs and cats as often as necessary to ensure their health and well-being, but not less than twice daily for at least one hour each time. That's on page 123. Still quoting, Euthanasia means the humane destruction of an animal accomplished by a method that produces rapid unconsciousness and subsequent death without evidence of pain or distress, or a method that utilizes anesthesia produced by an agent that causes painless loss of consciousness and subsequent death. That's on page 32. 
Terry Shaw, though, would have been treated better if she was a terrorist, if she was a prisoner of war, if she was a mass murderer on death row, or if she was an animal. Nowhere in America are we allowed to treat animals this way. And let's face it, even if we were legally allowed to execute animals by starvation, nobody would consider it moral or ethical. Now, I live on a farm, and we raise, kill, butcher, and eat animals. Just tonight, I ate some bacon that was raised on our farm. I would never consider starving an animal to death. An old animal that's sick, an animal we are going to butcher and eat, or the coyote that's eating my chickens, we kill them quickly. Only a sociopath would slowly watch an animal starve to death. What does that say about Michael Schivo, his attorney, George Philos, Judge uh, George Greer, who ordered the feeding tube to be removed, and the medical professionals who removed it? They are all monsters, and they deserve to die. When people hear me say this, they think, uh, Patrick, you've gone too far with that one. That's not okay. All right, let me make my case. First of all, I'm not talking about a vigilante. I think that Michael Shivo, Attorney George Philos, Judge George Greer, and the medical professionals who removed Terry's feeding tube should be arrested, tried, and executed. They are all complicit in the murder of Terry Shivo. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but at a minimum, four people can only claim the Nuremberg defense. You say, Patrick, what's that? I'm glad you've asked. Please continue to give me some latitude as I explain. To do this, we're going to go back to 1939, and we are going to talk about a little boy named Gerhard Kretschmar. He is also known as Patient K. Patient K was the first child killed by the Nazis. He wasn't just the first child killed by the Nazis. He was the first person killed by the Nazis. Gerhard was born blind with only one arm and with either no legs or one leg. The original medical records are lost and the secondhand accounts vary. But this is easily looked up. You can find an article in whatever your favorite periodical is that talks about this. Gerhardt's father, Richard Kretschmar, considered his severely disabled child to be a monster, and he soon approached his local physician with the request that the baby be, quote, put to sleep for his own good. The doctor refused, as the doctor should have. 
Kretschmar wrote directly to Adolf Hitler for help. Hitler, who had long been in favor of mercy killing the severely disabled, dispatched his personal physician, Karl Brandt, to the village to examine the child. Brandt examined Gerhard and concluded that the child was beyond help. With Hitler's blessing, the child was killed on the 25th of July, 1939. And remember, the child was killed. The first civilian death from the Nazis was killed by a doctor. His death would mark the start of the mass murder of the mentally ill and the physically disabled throughout Germany and its occupied territories. The program would come to be known as Action T4. Gerhard Kretschmar was five months old when the doctors killed him. The first not killing wasn't carried out by the SS. It was a doctor who killed him. The transformation of physicians into killers took time and required the appearance of scientific justification. Soon after the Nazis came to power, the Bavarian Minister of Health proposed that psychopaths and mentally retarded and other inferior people be isolated and killed. A year later, authorities instructed mental institutions throughout the Reich to, quote, neglect their patients by withholding food and medical treatment. Pseudoscientific ras rationalizations for the killing of unworthy were bolstered by economic considerations. According to bureaucratic calculations, the state could put funds that went to the care of criminals and the insane to better use. Something that is never brought up is the fact that doctors were the ones who started killing for the Nazi party, not soldiers, doctors. Adolf Eichmann. His assignment was to murder all the Jews in Europe. Adolf Eichmann's office was the headquarter for the implementation of what was called the final solution. Remember folks, once you step on that slippery slope, you start going downhill pretty fast. In August of 1944, the, quote, master of death could report to Himmler that approximately 4 million Jews had died in the death camps and another 2 million had been killed by mobile extermination units. In 11 years, the Nazis killed 6 million Jews along with 5 million others. The Gentiles included anyone, even children who were mentally retarded, those with Down syndrome, physical handicaps, mental illness, gypsies, blacks, and the elderly. They, well, we won't get into, I'm, I'm gonna, not going to get off on a rabbit trail on this one. On December 2nd, 1961, Adolf Eichmann was sentenced to death for crimes against the Jewish people and crimes against humanity. On May 31st, 1962, the state of Israel carried out the only death sentence in its history since it became a nation again in 1948. The man they executed, his only defense was, I was just following orders. That 
is the Nuremberg defense, following superior orders. The Nazis claimed that any person following superior orders, whether it be military, law enforcement, or civilian, is immune from criminal prosecution as a result of those orders. Judge George Greer made a ruling because of a Florida state law that said he could remove feeding tube. A doctor and several nurses assisted in carrying out that judge's order. Armed guards stood by to ensure nobody stopped that order. In my opinion, they are all criminally liable. There are no less than half a million abortions performed every year in America. Back in the 80s and the 90s, the numbers were close to 1.5 million abortions every year. Now, how did we get here? The same line of thinking is used for the killing of the unborn and the killing of Terry Schiavo. Life is cheap and inconvenient. Life is not looked at as sacred and ordained of God. So I have a question for you, and that is, what's the next step? The Nazis killed over 10 million people. Communism has killed tens of millions of people. Abortions have killed over 63 million babies since 1973, and that's just in the United States of America. Today, progressive thinkers are informing us that disabled people tax the medical system by draining health insurance dollars for their constant care. We're told these people have no quality of life. Soon, the elderly, along with those with dementia, epilepsy, Down syndrome, and Alzheimer's should be dealt with in a similar manner. Passive euthanasia, like withholding medical care, food, and water can be implemented. Next comes assisted suicide. At some point, we just wheel box trucks up to the loading bay of the hospital and wheel the undesirable people in. We gas them and we wheel the empty chairs out and we dispose of their remains in a mass grave or we just incinerate them. Is it that difficult to connect the dots? Is it that difficult to see the future? Just remember, one day you might be in a position to do the right thing and preserve life. Do the right thing. You will never regret it. When I talk to people about Terry Schiavo and the whole situation surrounding her, I was amazed at how much misinformation there was. That's why I wanted to tell this story. I didn't want people thinking that this was simply a fight to pull the plug on someone that was in a coma, that was brain dead, and that had a living will saying she didn't want to live in these circumstances. That was not the case. Terry knew when different people were talking to her. Terry could say several words. Terry would light up every time that her mom walked in the room. She would smile. 
She would scrunch up her face when her dad would come in to give her a kiss and tickle her face with the whiskers of his beard. She knew everybody that was involved with her life. Prior to Michael Shivo moving her to a hospice facility, she was taken out in public. She was brought to the mall. She enjoyed celebrating Christmas with her family. And once the lawsuits were settled and the malpractice money was awarded to Michael Shivo, he would not let his wife go to her parents' house to even celebrate Christmas. He would not allow any of the medical records to be shared with uh, Terry Shivo's family, her mom and dad and brother and sister. He had everything locked down. Terry was in a hospice facility in the very end of a long hallway so that she did not have contact with anybody. And there were armed guards searching her mother and father to make sure that they were not able to smuggle her as much as a few ice chips or a mouthful of water in her final days. Nobody that learns what happened to Terry Shivo will look back and say, this was handled well. This is the way that it should have happened. And I hate to tell everybody this, but all you need is one stupid law, one bad judge, one district attorney that's not willing to stand up and do their job, one county sheriff that's not willing to stand up and do his job, and a doctor and a nurse who are a coward and will kill an innocent person. That is what happened. You don't need all of a nation to turn against a group of people and make ovens and concentration camps. You only need a few bad people in power to ruin this country and to murder its citizens. I thought that Terry Schiavo deserved at least an hour of my time. I've read the book that I was telling you about through twice. I'd recommend everybody get it and go through it at least once. Thank you for your time. Hope everybody has a good night and we'll get together next week. And we'll talk about a more encouraging topic in the Bible. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Bible Thumper podcast where somebody's got to say it.